Welcome to Fertility Friendly Food. I'm your host, Stephanie Velarkis, accredited practicing dietitian and nutritionist and director of The Dietologist, an Australian-based practice focused on optimizing fertility through nutrition. This podcast will bring you snack-sized episodes for you to learn, grow, and be inspired by the latest research, facts, and practical lifestyle tips about eating well for optimal fertility, helping you cut through the confusion and myths to take back some of the control on your fertility journey, one bite at a time. Welcome back to another episode of Fertility Friendly Food. My name is Stephanie Velakis and I am an expert fertility dietitian and nutritionist and founder of The Dietologist. And for today's episode, I'm really excited to have my very first guest on the podcast. So it won't just be my voice that you'll be listening to for the next 30 minutes or so. We have the amazing Leah Sternquist from Balanced Nutrition based in Toowoomba and also online. And Leah is like my go-to expert when anything I don't know about thyroid concerns, thyroid and fertility, thyroid and pregnancy, thyroid plus anything, I pretty much just send Leah an email. (laughs) So I have brought you an expert in thyroid nutrition to the podcast to talk all things about nutrition and thyroid. So welcome, Leah. Ah, Thank you, Steph. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I'm so excited to have you on. Um, So let's just get right on into it because I'd like to keep these episodes nice and snappy. So can you... Tell us a little bit about what the thyroid is, what it does in terms of our health and well-being, and maybe dive into a bit about how it relates to fertility and pregnancy. For sure. So um, the thyroid gland is a part of our endocrine or hormone hormonal system, um, and it's the butterfly-shaped gland at the front of our neck. Um, so you can think about the thyroid gland like our body's thermostat in that it regulates our metabolism. So our metabolism is actually the sum of all of the tiny little metabolic processes happening in our body at any one time. So that could be the relaying of our gut lining. Um, It could be the synthesizing of hormones or renewing of skin cells, um, those types of things. So what our thyroid gland does is release hormones to tell the tissues in our body to complete these little tasks. Um, So how is the thyroid controlled? There's a part of our brain called the hypothalamus, um, which in turn produces hormones to tell the pituitary gland, which is a little dangly gland at the bottom of our brain, which is often portrayed in cartoons as our tonsils, incorrectly. Um, So the pituitary gland, under the instruction of the hypothalamus, is uh, advised to release TSH, or thyroid-stimulating hormone, which in turn then tells our thyroid gland how much thyroid hormone to release. So hypothalamus in your brain, pituitary gland under your brain, thyroid gland in your neck. So the two hormones that the thyroid gland does produce are T3, which is triiodothyronine, and T4, which is thyroxine. Um, These two hormones, of these two hormones, T4 is produced um, in bigger quantities But T3 is more effective. So what happens is after these thyroid hormones are released um, in other parts of our body, a lot of our T4 is actually converted into the more effective T3. 
So how does this impact fertility? Well, an imbalance of TSH, T3 and T4 can impact our menstrual cycle. And we know that without the completion of this cycle, you cannot become pregnant. So the imbalance of these hormones may and can impact the pathway from the hypothalamus to the pituitary gland, um, the role of which we just mentioned, and the flow-on effect thought to impact is thought to impact the hormone prolactin, which in turn interferes with the hormones responsible for ovulation and therefore the release and maturing of the egg. So this is quite typical of hormonal pathways in that they are pathways that aren't just, they don't act in one direction, they aren't simple, they act more in cascades. So one hormone will knock on a few, which may knock on a couple of others. And then the outcome may be a little bit down that hormone pathway. So what about pregnancy? Um, Thyroid is actually extremely critical in pregnancy. Um, and thyroid hormone is absolutely necessary for fetal brain and neural development. For the first 18 to 20 weeks of pregnancy, the baby is completely dependent on the mother for the production of thyroid hormones. And by mid-pregnancy, the baby, um, its thyroid kicks into gear. But that's not where that relationship stops because from mid-pregnancy, the baby's thyroid gland is then reliant on the mother's ingestion of adequate amounts of iodine in her diet for the baby's thyroid to function. And we'll talk about iodine in a minute, I'm sure. Um, so that's the fertility and pregnancy aspects of it. Yeah, wow. So it is certainly a bigger of a cascade, like you said, and sometimes the implications of something going wrong can feel so far removed. But when we actually look at what's at play here, um, <clears throat> some of these things can stem from, from our thyroid. And we know that that's the case with some of the ways that thyroid dysfunction can, can present. So maybe, Leah, can you talk us through what are some of the most common things that we see clinically where thyroid function goes wrong and how do we actually know? Like what do we look out for? In terms of thyroid dysfunction, you know, there's two different types of thyroid dysfunction, so I'll talk about those briefly, but I think we're mainly going to speak about hypothyroidism today. Um, so the thyroid gland can become overactive, um, and that's known as hyperthyroidism. So hyper means more, um, and it's usually due um, to an autoimmune um, reason. So our body has created this problem and made the thyroid work faster and harder, um, and it's known as a condition called Graves' disease. Um, so it is quite uh, tricky when it comes to fertility and pregnancy. It's actually quite difficult to manage in pregnancy, and you need a specialist um, OBGYN and a specialist endocrinologist to help because you need thyroid-blocking medication. Um, but hyperthyroidism and Graves' disease is much less prevalent than hypothyroidism. So hypothyroidism is when our thyroid is too slow. So hypo meaning slow in medical terms. Um, there's a couple of reasons why this can happen. So um, the, the one that we don't see very often is when poor dietary patterns that are deficient in iodine um, result in a slow thyroid. Um, but more frequently in Australia, we see hypothyroidism as a, re as a result of um, an autoimmune dysfunction again. And so when our body releases 
thyroid antibodies that attack our healthy cells in our thyroid. It can reduce the amount of thyroid hormone that our thyroid produces, um, which in turn slows it down. The symptoms of hyperthyroidism or our thyroid going too fast are things that you would expect to see. So, um, you know, weight loss, your heart rate is too fast, um, an overactive digestive system, so diarrhea is really common, um, an intolerance to heat, so sweating. Um, whereas if you look at the symptoms of hypothyroidism or your thyroid slowing down, it's things like weight gain, it's um, interruption of your heart rate, it's your digestive system going too slow. So constipation is a really common symptom of hy hypothyroidism. Um, high cholesterol because your cholesterol is not getting cleared from your body effectively because it's not working fast enough to do so. And actually a cold intolerance. So um, those with a slow thyroid can feel the cold really, really acutely. Um, so... There is, with the hypothyroidism, with the autoimmune basis and the antibodies present, that's known as Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Um, the two conditions are the same. We treat them the same and the symptoms are the same as well. Um, yeah. What kind of blood work do you think we would need to consider to screen for these things and, you know, who really should be going to get their thyroid check? Should everyone be doing it or just people who are experiencing some of these symptoms? Well, the difficulty with hypothyroidism and the symptoms of it is that they're quite vague symptoms. So, and the, these symptoms can occur for lots of different reasons. To be screened by a GP, uh, they use the, they actually test for TSH levels um, within a specific range. That range actually changes depending on your age and they'll use a different range actually for like during pregnancy as well if they're testing your thyroid function too. So if you're experiencing, you know, the like fatigue, constipation, unexplained weight gain, definitely get your thyroid checked. Most doctors will use those indicators as a reason to check TSH. But um, TSH may be elevated without actually being considered hypothyroidism. And that's when you get to the condition known as subclinical hypothyroidism. So that's when your body is perceiving or your hypothalamus is perceiving that there's not enough thyroid hormone in your system. And so it's telling your the pituitary gland to go harder and faster. And so the pituitary gland is producing more TSH. And so your TSH may be elevated, but your T4 hormone may be normal. Um, and you're not necessarily going to be medicated in that situation. In some situations, you will be if you're uh, aiming to try to become pregnant and you're undergoing fertility treatment. Um, but most of the time, GPs will not prescribe um, the medication required for hypothyroidism if it's subclinical, despite the fact that people may be experiencing symptoms. And that's why the management of the symptoms of hypothyroidism are as important as supporting the thyroid function itself. But beyond, I guess, medication and management, which obviously is something that we would encourage listeners to go and discuss one-on-one -on -one with their relevant healthcare provider, whether that be a GP or your endocrinologist or your fertility doc or OBGYN. But beyond that, our scope as a dietitian. How can we help navigate with our clients or with people out there managing thyroid conditions? 
how can we angle their diets in the right direction or can we angle their diets in the right direction to help support thyroid function, uh, particularly for those with hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's thyroiditis and subclinical hypothyroidism because I agree that's dominantly what I see as well. Yeah, uncommonly a Graves, a Graves disease client rocks up but not, not too often. Um, it's mo- mainly on the other end. Um, and yeah, it can certainly have implications as well on, on even menstrual cycle and ovulation, like you said, with that prolactin bit. So yeah, how can we angle the diet towards supporting a healthy thyroid, particularly when trying to conceive and, and during pregnancy? Oh, there's, there's a few things we can do. Um, and I've mentioned iodine a couple of times, but by far it is the most important nutrient when it comes to thyroid health. I'm not sure why we don't talk about iodine enough. I think it's a little bit of a forgotten nutrient. Um, I'll explain why I think that in a moment. Um, But iodine is absolutely crucial for thyroid function. And so the two thyroid hormones, T3 and T4, the numbers actually correlate to the number of iodine molecules attached to each molecule of thyroid hormone. So without three molecules of iodine or four molecules of iodine, those thyroid um, hormones actually cannot be produced. So Iodine is number one for sure. With Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism, it can be a bit funny because if you have too much iodine as well, it can cause an adverse effect. So you do want enough iodine. There is a bit of an argument as to what that upper limit is, somewhere between 6 to 1,000 micrograms a day. Um, But for fertility and pregnancy, we we recommend 150 in supplements um, the target in pregnancy is 220, breastfeeding is 270. Um, so iodine, where do we get it from? What is it? It's a trace element. It comes from the sea and the soil, which means that it's in lots of the food we eat in lots of different tiny amounts, and that's why it can be a little bit hard to um, calculate the iodine of someone's diet. We also can't do a blood test for iodine. Um, we can do a 24-hour urine collection, but you very rarely see this happening. Um, because the amount of iodine we also excrete in our urine changes. So if it's from the sea and the soil, um, you know, seaweed and seafood is a good source, but actually, in fact, our soil in Australia is quite deplete of iodine because a lot of the areas of Australia have a history of volcanic activity. Um, And so therefore in Australia there has been a big push from about the 1940s and 50s for iodized salt to be used. Um, And about 15 years ago, the Australian government also made it mandatory for packaged wheat bread in Australia to contain iodized salt. So the biggest sources of iodine in the Australian diet is actually iodized salt and wheat bread, um, which leads into a couple of little difficulties um, with the change in our diets in recent years. You know, there has been a big swing away from carbohydrates. Um, A lot of people are eating lower carbohydrate, which means less bread or no bread. Um, Gluten-free breads do not have to contain iodine. Fancy bakery breads don't have to contain iodine. Um, And then there's also the rise of fancy salts. So, you know, smoked salt, pink Himalayan salt, these salts don't necessarily contain iodine, nor does sea salt flakes. And a lot of these have gained you know, a lot of popularity, particularly from cooking shows, I think it's down to. Um, But, yeah, so these are the traditional sources of iodine in our diet in Australia. They might not be foods that are eaten as much anymore. Um, Other foods that contain it, seaweed. Seaweed will have variable amounts of iodine depending on the type where it's um, been grown. Um, So it can be variable. You can get some 
uh, a lot of different seaweed products on the market now. However, kelp products are something we don't recommend, like the kelp supplements, because they can um, have levels of iodine in them far far above what they say. Um, seafood, you'll get a little bit, and you'll get a bit from eggs, and you'll get trace amounts in fruit and veg. Um, above, apart from the iodine, the nutrients that are critical in the conversion of the T4 hormone into the more effective T3 hormone um, are the nutrients iron, zinc, and selenium. So iron and zinc, of course, come from um, meat and animal products predominantly. Um, Iron can be a little bit difficult for some people to get um, in adequate amounts, and so supplements may need to be used, and that's when we can test quite easily. So if you have a history of thyroid um, hypothyroidism and you're wanting to fall pregnant, I would actually go and get your iron tested. Zinc is something that very rarely do we see deficient, but if you're following certain dietary patterns, it can be. So if you're not eating animal products. And then you've got selenium. So selenium is found most predominantly in Brazil nuts and shellfish. Um, we can also do a blood test for that, but I've never really seen anyone low in selenium to date. Um, but we can bump up the intake with things like Brazil nuts quite easily. Um, The other nutrient I will mention is that people with hypothyroidism do tend to have higher rates of vitamin D deficiency, and we know that vitamin D is a powerful antioxidant, so that's something that definitely should get checked. Um, We live in Australia, it's very sunny, but we do have quite a high rate of vitamin D deficiency. It's probably the most frequent one I see in practice. Awesome. Thanks for that, Leah. I wholeheartedly agree. It's all exactly the same things that I talk about with with clients that I see with thyroid dysfunction because uh, I learnt from the best, which is you. So that's good. <laughs> that's good. Pew. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I think there is a big push, particularly amongst those with thyroid conditions, particularly autoimmune thyroid conditions like Hashimoto's, to explore things like gluten-free diets and so on. And given just your observation on the lack of iodized salt in gluten-free bread, it's a bit of a catch-22 in that domain. And I think the other really interesting thing that I was doing some reading on recently was how prevalent iodine insufficiency not deficiency but insufficiency in the diet is so common still today um and i think the statistic was 65 percent of pregnant women are not getting enough iodine and 85 percent are not getting enough breastfeeding because that requirement steps up like you just said from 220 to 270 micrograms so this is absolutely critical nutrient but i often find it really interesting that we always are banging on about folic acid prior to conception and in first trimester but uh, oftentimes people overlook iodine um, particularly not just for their own thyroid support but also for the development of baby as well. So, yeah, I think it's really important points that you made there. Thanks so much, Leah. Oh, I think it's actually quite bizarre the way that we do put so much emphasis on folic acid when the RANSCOG guidelines clearly state that we need to supplement with both mm-hmm. prior to conception and that's because it does have such a critical role in fetal development. Yeah, um, and the you know the uh, reduction in risk of neural tube defects. So, mm-hmm. you raise an interesting point about the gluten free diet and the fact that gluten free bread doesn't need to contain iodine by law in Australia. Um, and I think that there are other places to get iodine if you're gluten free. 
Um, some people do follow a gluten-free diet with Hashimoto's. Mm. Um, you know, gluten-free diets are quite popular with autoimmune conditions and there is, you know, a link between Hashimoto's and celiac disease where you do need to completely avoid gluten. Um, the evidence isn't really there, but I have had clients who have benefited from a strictly gluten-free diet with Hashimoto's. And although they've been biopsied twice to try and diagnose celiac, they're negative. Um, but the way in which they react to gluten, it is, it's better for them to keep it out of their diet. And so I think that really comes back to the role of the dietitian in helping people construct a diet that is very individually suited to them. Um, so I wouldn't recommend gluten-free as a rule for Hashimoto's, but it may be something worth trying if other things don't seem to be getting the client to a place of symptom management that they're happy with. Um, other diets for thyroid conditions, you know, people will say dairy is pro-inflammatory. I don't think there's evidence for that. I think dairy is a really nutritious food. Um, and then I think also, yeah, well, vegan diets and vegetarian diets are also quite popular. Mm. Um, again, if they've got the right sources of iodine and that they're replacing those zinc the zinc and iron in their diets they should be okay but you know that's what our role is to help people to get to a diet that's nutritionally adequate within the um layers uh that they want to have their diet does that make sense yeah totally mm -hmm. actually you raised an amazing point about dairy and it's actually a myth that i think is still circulating even amongst healthcare professionals is about that dairy is a good source of iodine and it used to be because they used yes. to use the detergents that they used to clean the milking equipment with contained yes. iodine in the cleaning solution so that would accidentally kind of contaminate the milk with iodine so dairy was considered a good source of iodine yes. however that has not been the case for years and yes. yet it still remains yes. on like so many websites that I read that are like reputable websites um, and I actually asked a dairy farmer I went to a dairy farm as part of like an event that I, I got the opportunity to go to with Dietitian Connection and I asked the farmer about this because I was like I want to get it straight from the horse's mouth <laughs> or the dairy farmer's mouth so to speak and um, I asked that question. They're like, oh, my God, we, like, do not use iodine cleaning solutions no. at all. We avoid it like the plague. And, in fact, we test the milk to ensure there is no iodine. What? And they were like to us, why would that be desirable that there's iodine in the milk? Like they were completely baffled by it. So, yeah, just a heads up, dairy sources, not a good source of iodine. No, and that hasn't been the case. I think they stopped using those sorts of disinfectants in the 80s and 90s. They were phased out. Mm. Um, but, yeah, and I think that, you know, iodine used to be in milk because of the disinfectants they used, the fact that we've put it into our bread by law in Australia, and the fact that iodized salt was the only salt you ever got. I think all those those situations have evolved to this point where the public actually don't know a lot about iodine and there's a lot of complacency about it. Mm. And even when iodine has that role in fertility and pregnancy and breastfeeding, it's not well known. A lot of women I see cease their prenatal multivitamin or even the ifolic, you know, mm. the folic acid iodine combination after they have a baby when in fact you're never going to have high iodine requirements that as you do when you are breastfeeding it's mm -hmm. 270 micrograms a day that's high I think your average slice of wheat bread 70 mm. 
It's a lot of bread. That's a lot of bread. You know, and if you like bread, that's cool. But if you like other foods, it's going to be a bit more difficult. Mm. And so um, I think that we do need to talk about iodine more. Mm. And I was talking to a dietitian in Melbourne who actually has a company called Alg Seaweed. Mm. And she's producing seaweed products for the reason that we don't have a lot of iodine in our diets. How it's wild is that? So, yeah, it's actually a really cool product. But yeah. Yeah, it's amazing to see how diet trends and products that emerge shift our nutritional intake so much and maybe to a degree even, you know, I know you mentioned iodine deficiency isn't common in most countries in the Western world, but, you know, it is angling in that direction for many people that they're on the borderline of a mild to moderate kind of iodine deficiency when you really look at their dietary intakes um yeah like in detail like you have it properly analyzed not like a guesstimate like you have this properly analyzed by a dietitian you can really really see where the gaps are there so yeah absolutely I don't think the importance of iodine can be understated but you also don't want to overdo it either like there is this kind of happy medium of like the right amount and honestly you you kind of just need to have a chat to somebody like Leah or somebody like myself to like nut that out for you because depending on your blood work and your history and all sorts of your medications and all that kind of stuff that we need to kind of take a look at. So what happens, say, hooray, you get pregnant, now what? If you've got an underlying thyroid condition, what should we, what should we be doing? Well, actually, your medical professionals, if you've got hypothyroidism, should be telling you to increase your thyroxine by 20 to 40% as soon as you fall pregnant. That's not always the case. Often blood work is looked at quite closely and frequently during pregnancy. There will be an increased requirement for thyrox, for thyroid hormone. Um, I have had a situation where a client stayed within range without increasing her thyroxine throughout the duration, so it was a bit funny. Um, but, yeah, if you've got these conditions, you still, you still you need to be properly managed for a start. It's likely your thyroxine requirement is going to increase. And the third thing I was mention is that you still need iodine in your prenatal supplement because your iodine intake is um, required for your baby to use when its thyroid gets to maturity about halfway through the pregnancy. Yeah, one of the biggest things that I see, some not all, but some doctors recommend is discontinuing prenatal supplementation at 12 weeks because, oh, neural tubes closed, don't worry about it mm-hmm. anymore, don't need that. And it was really interesting, actually, Kaylee's research, and she's a dietitian that I've got here at the Dietologist, her research, which was published last year, showed that four out of 534 women in their third trimester were reading were reaching their nutrient targets for zinc, iodine, folate, fiber, calcium, iron without a prenatal just from oh diet. God. And so I was just like why on That's earth right. are we yeah. discontinuing prenatals at 12 weeks? This is mental. <laughs> and I've also seen some recommendations that to start taking the prenatal every second day in third trimester. But I'm not sure what the justification no. of that is when most prenatals only contain 150 micrograms of iodine, you need 220, and then if you're taking it every second day, you're down yeah. to 75 on average. Like I just I think that I think thyroid health really doesn't get the attention that it deserves, and iodine definitely is not 
there's not enough known about it within yeah. the general population. And in terms of diet, dietary considerations in pregnancy affected by, you know, whether that be a, a newly diagnosed thyroid condition that occurs in pregnancy, which actually happens quite a lot, and even postpartum sometimes that happens too, um, or a pre-existing thing. Is there anything in particular beyond what we are just discussing around prenatal supplementation from a dietary perspective that we might want to consider in pregnancy? You might want to consider what the symptoms may be in pregnancy if you do have, like if you've got diagnosed hypothyroidism, you know, you may experience constipation to a higher degree, which is common in first trimester because of the progesterone um, changes, but also, you know, if your thyroid thyroxine replacement isn't as high as it should be. So it could be, you know, thinking more about that symptom management, making it, making sure you're eating enough to get your energy up, making sure you're eating enough fibre and fluid and moving to prevent constipation. Um, but, yeah, definitely including sources of iodine in your diet on top of your prenatal because it will only contain that 150 usually unless you're going for something a bit higher but they're the standard types of ones Mm. Um, but making sure again you know you've got your iron your zinc selenium and vitamin d as well awesome who should be on a team when it comes to managing thyroid concerns whether you're trying to conceive or pregnant or not who are the kind of key members of the healthcare team a GP who understands that thyroid health is more than just your blood work and that symptoms also have to be taken into account. It's not just the blood work that need, that should be taken at face value because those reference ranges are quite re- wide, let's be honest. Definitely a dietitian, of course, I'm going to say that. Um, if you're trying to conceive, I would be with a fertility specialist, uh, making sure they're doing what they can to support your thyroid function. The one that a lot of people don't know as well who may be taking thyroxine is that exercise increases the effectiveness of thyroxine. So if you're not exercising and you need some accountability, getting someone to help you to support to increase exercise or maintain exercise would be my recommendation as well. Um, And, of course, if you're undergoing fertility treatment or wanting to fall pregnant and you're struggling, I can't emphasise the benefit of mental health support whether that's a psychologist or a support group or whatever it may look like. I just can't emphasise that enough. I think it's absolutely beneficial to be looking after your mental health if fertility is becoming an issue for you. Absolutely, and there's an impact of low thyroid hormone on rates of even depression that we see. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Thyroid affects everything. Yeah. It really does, but mental health can play a, uh, can be a part of hypothyroidism as well yeah totally i think uh, there's a few great actually endocrinologists which are kind of like hormone doctors outside of the world of fertility so if you just were having a thyroid concern you're not planning to conceive tomorrow or in the next few months but you want to get on top of it proactively um of course a great gp is a great first step but if you're looking for that more depth um an endocrinologist is another really great person you could consider as well Oh, for sure. I asked a GP last week about why not why endocrinologists were not always involved in the management mm-hmm. of thyroid disease, particularly hypothyroidism, and she said that if the GP thinks they're managing well enough, they won't refer on. But if you think that you need more support, definitely ask for a specialist referral. There you go. Sometimes you don't ask, you don't get. Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah, I think we need to start spreading, well, yeah, start spreading the word, 
that iodine has such a role in fertility and pregnancy. Absolutely. And trying to get it um, back up that priority list because it can have such an impact on, you know, intellectual development, brain mm. development and those types of things. And the symptoms, if unmanaged with hypothyroidism, can really overrun your life. They can be difficult to manage. Uh, tuning into this podcast, not necessarily thinking about conceiving in the near future, but this might be something that resonates with you, definitely take this as your little sign to head off to your doctor and have a conversation, get some testing done and be proactive about managing hypothyroidism prior to the point of conception. It makes the whole process of managing during that time a lot easier uh, from my experience. And I I don't know if you'd agree with that, Leah, (laughs) from your experience too. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. Also, probably one thing I didn't mention is that you're, if you've experienced recurrent miscarriage, get your thyroid checked. Mm. Absolutely could be one of the main reasons. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Recurrent miscarriage, red flag, thyroid. All right, Leah, where can we find out more about you for the lovely listeners who want to hear more from you? Um, so my Instagram is at balancednutrition underscore one word mm-hmm. um, my website's www.balancednutrition.com.au and you can find me on facebook at balanced nutrition Toowoomba. Um, i see clients in my clinics but do see many clients virtually as well awesome i will link all those in the show notes as well Thank you so much for your time, Leah. We are so lucky to have you on the podcast. I'm sure the listeners got so much from it. And thanks for having me. Pleasure.